Hello, and welcome to the Bible Made Easy podcast. I'm your host, Kelly, and I'm here to help you understand what you just read in the Bible. Hello, everyone. I am so glad you're on this journey with me. If you are new, welcome. If you have any questions on how the podcast is laid out, you can listen to my introduction episode. And everyone is welcome to go to my website, bmepodcast.com, to drop me a note ask any question, or just get up to date on the podcast with the resources I have there, including links to all of my pop culture references. Welcome to week 43, Matthew chapter 18, John chapter 7 through 10, and Luke chapter 10 through 17 verses 1 through 10. Let's start in Matthew 18. We start with a concept introduced last week, and that is about causing people to stumble. So the conversation starts because the disciples ask Jesus who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus calls a child to him, and he tells the disciples, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This doesn't mean a literal child, but the positioning in the heart of a child, knowing that we are in the lowliest position and that everything comes from our Father in heaven. And I think Matthew eighteen seven sums it up best. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If you've ever seen the video where the farmer is pulling a sheep out of a ditch only to have that sheep jump off and dive headfirst into the ditch again, then you understand why God often refers to us as sheep. Because yes, that is me. But Jesus shows his love for us, even as we do those dumb things, saying that even if he has 99 that are following him correctly and just one goes astray, as we all do to a degree at some point, he will immediately come after us because he is not willing that any of us should perish. Then Matthew 18, 15 through 20 goes into the judgment thoughts. And this is where things are often misquoted or taken out of context. So read the words carefully. Notice it says, if your brother or sister does sin, go and point it out to them, just between the two of you. I'll use an obvious example here. If you know that your BFF is cheating, then you need to go to them and tell them that it is not okay and they need to stop. If they listen, great, they stop. You pray and God will deal with them and you don't have to tell anyone. However, if they do not listen, then you bring two or more with you. Now, these need to be people who love this person and want the best for them. But all three go to your friend and implore them to stop cheating. It's sinful, it's dangerous, and it is going to ruin not only their lives, but the lives of many others. If your friend still refuses, then you go to the church. Please keep in mind this is for brothers and sisters in Christ who are doing this, not just anyone, and you never do this lightly without praying beforehand, and you are trying to bring them back to God. This is not a judging issue. It's a sin issue that does nothing but cause harm. Finally, after being brought up at the church, they still don't care, and they still refuse to stop. Then you let them go and do what they want. Then we get to the parable about the unmerciful servant. Make sure you are not this person. They were forgiven so much, but then turned around and forgave nothing. I've certainly been this person, uh, not without money, but with harms. God has forgiven me so much, but sometimes I want to hold on to the hurt someone else caused me and rail against them and make them be punished for what they did to me. So yeah, I'm not proud of that, but I want you to know you're not alone if you struggle with it. I have to give it over to God a lot. Sometimes I think I'm doing good and then boom, something comes up and reminds me of a past hurt and I have to forgive it and give it all back to God again. It's simple. It is not easy. Then in John chapter 7 through 8, we catch up with Jesus and he and his disciples are having a quasi argument. The disciples want to go to the festival and Jesus says it is not his time. However, they try to persuade and 
sort of manipulate Jesus by saying that if he is truly a public figure, he would not do his acts in secret, but in public. And I'm thinking to the disciples, did he or did he not feed over 9,000 people? However, Jesus is not swayed by their mere human argument and firmly states it is not his time to be public. So the disciples go and eventually Jesus goes incognito, nothing public. Meanwhile, the Jewish leaders, <clears throat> Pharisees, were looking for Jesus and wanted to kill him. So, as Jesus is going to the temple courts, it can be overheard that some believe he is good and that he does not deceive people, but it's murmured because who wants to go against the Jewish leaders? Once Jesus is at the temple courts, he begins to teach, and the people are truly amazed, wondering how he knew all of what he was teaching. Jesus simply answers them that it's not his own, but comes from the one who sent him. You know, God the Father, his Father. Now, this starts an argument and explanation from Jesus that goes on through chapter 8. First up, don't think that he can be the Messiah because they know he comes from Galilee. Jesus is like, yes, but I came from and have authority from God the Father, who you don't know, but I do because I was sent by him. This makes the people pause because if God didn't send him, then would anyone else be able to perform the signs and miracles that this Jesus fellow did? This got the temple guards to try and arrest him. However, Jesus speaks again with, I'm only with you for a short time, and then I got to read where I came from, and where I go, you can't follow. So now that starts spinning their minds yet again because they don't answer any of this. I'm pretty sure that they looked the same way my dog does when I explain I'm going to take the trash out. I'll be right back. But I've left her and now I'm gone and she has no idea what is coming up next. And no matter how many times I use the same phrase and do the same motions, it's like it's brand new and she is just lost. If you've ever felt this way in your spiritual journey, you are not alone. Sometimes I feel even dumber. Blessedly, Jesus does not roll his eyes at us and leaves us exasperated and confused, even today, and comes back and explains yet again that if you will believe in who he is, the Messiah, that you will receive living water that will continually flow through you, meaning the Holy Spirit. And some are like, dang, this man is a prophet. And yet there are some out there still so terribly confused, having missed everything and still stuck. They keep going back to the thought that the Messiah was a descendant of David. Like, wasn't he supposed to be a David again, like a king? And praise be to Jesus, because my human self's eye would probably start twitching at this point. Never mind that the temple guards are trying to arrest him at this point, yet no one is laying a hand on him. So when the guards come back, the Pharisees are like, where's Jesus? Guards are like, no one has ever spoke the way this man does. Pharisees are like, oh, so you're deceived now too, huh? You're just like the rest of the common goobs who believe. Pharisees had no problems with their elitism. Nicodemus, who was more understanding, was like, we can't condemn a man if we haven't heard from him. And the rest of the group just rolls their eyes and are like, is it because you come from the same place? Look, no one good comes from Galilee. To make this more modern, think of more of a class warfare where... Let's say you have the elites over at the Met Gala, attendants being called out correctly and with authority from someone who cut on a southern trailer park. And the nasty assumptions all of that has, and you kind of get how the Pharisees see themselves, um, those at the Met Gala, versus anyone else, but especially people from certain places. Clearly wrong, and everyone else can see it but them, because they think they're too good and above the rest. I hope you know how I feel about that kind of attitude. So, after not being arrested, a little bit of time passes and Jesus speaks again, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Pharisees are like, yeah, so says you, but who are you to testify about yourself? Jesus responds, yes, because I know where I come from and where I'm going. I don't use your human standards, and if I judged, I'd be correct, because I am not alone. I come from God the Father. And he, too, will testify about me making my testimony that of the two required by law. Mic drop. 
too bad the Pharisees can't accept that because, of course, they come back with an, oh, yeah, who's your dad? Jesus says, you don't know him or me. If you knew me, you'd know him. And once again, reminds them he is going away and where he is going, they can't go, which to be fair to some really confuses them. But Jesus continues and explains, I am from above, you are from below. You are from this world, I am not. If you do not believe in me, you will die in your sins. Who are you, they ask. Perfect time for a facepalm. But alas, this is Jesus who is literally the best, so he doesn't do that. He's like, what I've been telling you from the beginning, I come from my father, who's I've been sent to tell everyone what he has told me. Yeah, I still aren't getting that at all. So Jesus begins to describe it another way. And even though some were confused, many believed in him. To those who did believe, Jesus tells them that if they hold to his teaching, they will be free. And they answered, we're Abraham's descendants. Haven't we always been free? Jesus explains that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And since slaves have no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs into a family forever. So if this sets you free, you are free indeed. Meaning he is the son. So if you believe in him, he will free you from your sins. Or as some say today, he would save you from your strongholds to sin or your trauma bonds to sin. However you look at it, sin keeps you enslaved in a certain way of thinking and doing that is not freeing at all. But believe in Jesus will free you from that. He goes on to explain that they did believe in God the Father. They would believe in him since he is God's son. However, they do not. They are believing the father of lies, the devil, aka Satan, who was a murderer from the beginning, not holding the truth, for there is no truth in him. He is a liar. In fact, he is the father of lies. All of Jesus' explanation, and the crowd comes back with, aren't we right saying you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Seriously, all of that. And they wanted to throw insults too. Jesus is like, no, no, I'm not. I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking out glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. I'm telling you straight, if you believe in me, you will never see death. Well, now they took that literally as in the body, not the spirit, because the body will totally die. But your spirit will not if you believe in Christ. But they weren't there yet in understanding. So they just called him a liar and then asked Jesus if he is greater than Abraham. Jesus like, if I was glorifying myself, it would mean nothing. But my father, whom you claim as God, glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I do. And if I said I didn't know him, I would be a liar. But I'm not one, so I know him and obey him. Your father Abraham rejoiced and looked forward to my coming. To which the crowd scoffs, like, you're not even 50, how can you have seen Abraham? To which Jesus delivers another boom mic drop, walk off the set utterance, before Abraham was born, I am. Which, if you'll recall, is what God says his name is. So this really pisses the crowd off, and they wanted to stone him. But Jesus hid and slipped away. In John 9 through 10, remember when Jesus healed the blind guy and the Pharisees were there and were upset because he did it on the Sabbath, but they weren't sure if it was Jesus and kept asking the blind guy who healed him. And he's like, I don't know. I was blind. Well, you knew the Pharisees weren't going to let that go. So in fact, we get to continue with it. And the Pharisees were so mad about it. They investigated further trying to find out who healed the blind man. And the blind man is like, I was blind. I could not see who it was that healed me. Well, that made way too much sense and was not what they wanted to hear. So they asked this grown man's parents about it, basically making it where if any of them lied, they would be thrown out of the temple, which meant they were thrown out of society, which meant they were thrown out of their family, away from their friends, and everyone would disown them, making living ridiculously hard and poverty a certainty. Which is why his parents were a bit hesitant to answer and threw it back to their grown son. Like, he's been blind since birth. He's a grown man. He can answer your questions. Again, they questioned the former blind man. And again, the man said, I was blind. 
This man put mud on my eyes, told me to go wash it out. And when I did, I could see. And the man who healed me wasn't there. So I have no idea what he looks like or who he is. Furthermore, this man had to be God because God doesn't listen to sinners. And this man healed me. Therefore, he has to be from God. Well, heck no. Is that okay to the Pharisees? So they just start insulting him because they're so spitting mad and basically throw him out because he won't and literally can't give them the answer they want. And of course, proves that Jesus is God, which really upsets them further. This is upsetting to a man who finally was blessed to see, would be able to finally make his own money and not be a burden to his parents and friends, and no longer they needed to beg for food or money. And what happens? They kick him out anyway. But Jesus shows up for this man yet again, like he wouldn't, and asks him if he believes in the Son of Man. And the guy's like, who is he so I may believe in him? And Jesus was like, now you've seen him. In fact, he's the one that's speaking to you. Former blind guy is like, Lord, I believe and worship him. And Jesus explains he came into this world so that the blind will see and those that see will be blind, which ticked off the Pharisees who just cannot seem to stay in their own lane. Jesus is like, look, if you were blind, meaning in this instance, not knowing what the scriptures say, you would not be guilty of sin right now. But you do know what it says and you choose to ignore it so your guilt remains. Jesus continues on speaking to the Pharisees and explains to them why he is the good shepherd. He is the gate for the sheep because whoever enters through him will have eternal life. He is the good shepherd because he will lay down his life for the sheep. He is the good shepherd because he knows his sheep and they know him. In fact, they can pick his voice out of all the voices and listen only to him. Are you surprised that the Pharisees don't like this? <laughs> and still, some try to say he is demon-possessed. Still, I like the others who are like, that's a stupid argument. Why would someone who is demon-possessed act or do the things he does? Then, in Luke 10, verses 25 through 41, we read the parable of the Good Samaritan, which he knows impacts us today, at least in the U.S., because of our own Good Samaritan laws. But, as you know, the Jews are not fans of Samaritans, and so when the parable starts, we see the Pharisees, the priests, all pass by a Jewish man who had been robbed and left for dead. They did nothing. But the Samaritan, who knew that if this hurting man were fine, he would look down on him, did everything to help this hurting man, even giving out a huge chunk of change to make sure he was healed. And Jesus asks, who is your neighbor? Obviously, it is the Samaritan, and that is when Jesus calls us to act like the Good Samaritan did. We then are introduced to the Martha and Mary, and women especially understand this dynamic. But guys, I, I'm sure you have a pretty good understanding of what's going on here, too. Basically, Martha was taking care of all the things, the cooking, the cleaning, the serving, making sure it all happened, was done, and then was getting upset because her sister Mary was not helping at all and in exasperation asked Jesus to support her. And while Jesus acknowledged what is going on, he tells Martha that she only needs to be concerned with him currently, and Mary was doing that, and it wouldn't be taken away from her. Which, as a Martha, the way that would have hurt me. But also a great reminder that God allows us to spend and enjoy time with him, and that while the other stuff is important, that time is even more so. So it's okay to step back and enjoy. Then Jesus teaches us about prayer and gives us an outline of how our prayers should be structured. We don't need to say the same thing every time, but it does give us an outline. We acknowledge God and who he is, that his will comes first, that he gives us our needs, that we ask forgiveness of our sins, and to help us forgive the ones who hurt us like God does for us, and to help us with our temptations. Now, this does not mean this is the only way to pray or that it has to be in this formula, but it's a divine way to pray when we're not sure where to start or how or what to even pray for. Jesus also encourages us to come to God, our Father, and ask for whatever we want. 
If we ask our parents, or our children ask us, for good things, we are not going to give them something nasty. And if we won't do that, God certainly isn't going to. Just know that it is okay to ask. That's the point. It doesn't mean that every ask will be granted, but we can be safe and secure in the knowledge that even if we ask for the most audacious thing, not sinful, that God will not be offended or punish us for asking. So we see Jesus driving out demons, and once again, he is accused of being Satan, and he's like, a house divided against itself cannot stand. He goes on to explain how the very argument that he is Beelzebub is ridiculous, because if he were him, he wouldn't be able to drive evil out. And this woman is so into it, she just cheers him on and says, blessed is the woman who gave birth to you. And Jesus with her in enthusiasm, but does correct to blessed are the ones who hear the word of the Lord and obey. As more crowds come, Jesus explains that the current generation is a wicked generation and will ask for a sign, but only the sign of Jonah will be given. He mentions the Queen of the South as a judgment against the Pharisees and Jews of the time because here was a Gentile, Queen of Sheba, was, who sought Solomon out for the answers, were given them, and she was more wise than the current generation in front of him. Also were the Ninevites, or people from Nineveh, who heard what God had to say and repented, which is far more than what the current trifecta of people that the Jewish people didn't like were doing. And of course, the Pharisees were not fans of this. Jesus even goes on to explain to the crowd how to be a lamp aka a light, to this world and how to be what he is teaching. And after all of this, a Pharisee and other experts in the law want to have dinner with Jesus. And they try to come after Jesus for what they see as offenses, and Jesus was not having it, and continue to explain once again that they, the Pharisees, the Jews, of all the people, of all the time, and in all the world, should understand who Jesus is and what is happening, but they refuse, and that will cost them. And instead of the blessing that is there, they would suffer terrible consequences for their blatant unwillingness to see the truth. Jesus even explains to a crowd at the temple courts what he has told the Pharisees and experts in the law at dinner. Of course, this just made them angry and want to kill Jesus all the more, which in reality proved Jesus's point. In Luke 12 through 14, we get closer to the time of Jesus' death. And as that happens, notice how we hear him speak more, caution, and teach. It feels like time is moving faster the closer we get to the big event. And I figure that's how it's probably going to feel in the end times too. Just throwing that out there. So Jesus is with a rather unruly crowd. And so Jesus starts talking directly to the disciples and people will stop being so rude to one another and start to listen to him. But he starts with telling them to be on guard and the Pharisees and their yeast, which is their hypocrisy, which is they may look righteous, pious, and in today's terms, totally virtual signaling. But what they do in the dark and in inner rooms will come to light. Make sure that you are not a part of it. Jesus tells them not to be fearful of these men who may kill them, as you can only kill the body once, but to fear, aka respect, the one who can cast your soul into hell. <clears throat> God, who cares about the lives of sparrows, so cheaply regarded at that time that you could buy five for only two pennies. And yet, God doesn't forget them. He knows the very number of hairs on your head. And to God, you are worth more than many sparrows and cares for you even more than he cares for them. So don't worry about what men can do, aka kill you. Be more concerned with what God has for you. And if you publicly acknowledge the Son of Man, aka Jesus, he will acknowledge you in front of the angels of God. But if you don't and you disown him, he will do the same for you. 
And then we get to the unforgivable sin, the one who blasphemies against the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Jesus clearly tells you that it's not if you say bad words against him, when you don't know him and you're being your regular sinful self. That's not the sin that sends you to hell. It's the rejection of Christ, which means you go against the Holy Spirit, that that is what the unforgivable sin is. That's what sends you to hell. And you have that decision. So God doesn't send you there. You make the choice of whether you will accept Christ as your Savior or you won't. And if you don't, there are consequences to that decision. If you want to discuss this more, please reach out to me on my website, bmepodcast.com. There's a contact page. Put it in. I would glad to be to talk with you more. So then we go on and we see a man who was very rich and just kept accumulating wealth, but never did more than just show just how much wealth he had. Like he never helped anybody. He never gave it away. He just kept accumulating it more and more so he could show how wealthy he was. And Jesus tells him, you're a fool. Tonight, your very life will be asked of you. And where does your fortune go then? And then Jesus tells us not to worry. I should probably have these verses marked for myself. Um, and I do have them underlined and I try to memorize them. But alas, uh, I am a natural worrier. I don't like being that way. Um, and I try hard not to, but it is not easy for me. And even though Jesus proves time and time again why we shouldn't worry, and it's the opposite of faith, um, as someone who doesn't always have the best luck is the best word I can use for it. Uh, Murphy's Law, like, it's just things rarely, <laughs> it doesn't always go my way, let's say. It can be a bit difficult sometimes to not worry. So I only say this because if that's you, you are not alone and we can definitely help one another. Make no mistake, I do know that God has me and I do pray to him often. I'm just saying some days are just more difficult than others and that's going to happen. But, but if you're struggling, you are not alone. You are never alone. And then we get into Jesus explains why we should be watchful of the times and what is happening. If we are caught unaware, it is not going to go well for us. But if we keep our eye on it and do what God has taught us, we will be prepared. And then Jesus explains how to interpret the times. Jesus goes on to explain that we must repent of our sins or we will perish. And he's not talking about just bodily death, but spiritual death. If you never acknowledge that you are a sinner and are therefore spiritually dead, you will never be acknowledged by God as a follower of his, and therefore you have set your fate. Again, that is rejecting the Holy Spirit. That is rejecting Christ. And that was your decision. But again, there will be consequences for that. That is why so many of us who do follow Christ can be a bit spirited and sometimes outright annoying to get people to believe. We don't want that fate for you. We love you. We want you in heaven with us. We know that your life here and your eternal life will be all the good thing if you do repent to God and accept Jesus as your Savior. Jesus goes on to heal a woman on the Sabbath, and you guessed it, that upset the Pharisees yet again. And once again, Jesus drop mics them and the crowd hear it, causing the Pharisees to be humiliated. Then we read why believing in him takes the faith of a mustard seed but works like yeast and dough, and how it makes him sorrowful over the fact that Jerusalem and the majority will not follow him because they cannot see past their own applied blindness. Jesus continues to explain himself, the way of things, and why the Pharisees are all incredibly wrong, especially being upset that people are healed on the Sabbath. But he also explains that while all this is true and following Jesus is the best thing you can ever do, it does come at a cost. And you need to know that cost before you do so, which proves that God allows for free will because he even has you know the cost and decide if it is worth it. P.S. From my side, it is always worth it. 
Then we get to Luke chapters 15 through 17. Jesus goes on to explain to the crowds how much God loves them and worthy they are to him by showing that even if there are so many that follow him are there, he will go after a lost one to bring them back. They are not beyond his mercy and grace if they repent and come back to him. Jesus also makes it very clear that you cannot serve two masters. And as it is for most of us, he uses money as the example and says that we cannot love money and we cannot love God because we cannot serve both of them. Now, he doesn't say having money is bad. In fact, we see when Jesus is talking about the shrewd manager that it isn't the money that makes it bad. It's the love of that money. However, we do learn that the Pharisees loved money and therefore sneer at Jesus. <laughs> and we see how this works even further with the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, just note that this Lazarus is not the same as the one who is Jesus's friend that we will read about a little bit later. This is where we end today. If you have any reactions, thoughts, questions, or words you need to throw my way, please do so at my website, bmepodcast.com. Have a most fabulous week, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.